welcome to the first ever episode of the Bones and Apparitions podcast. I am your host, Brittany, and if you have found this podcast, then that means we have a lot in common. Or we don't. Who knows? If you love good old ghost stories and love learning about true crime and serial killers, then you are for sure in the right place. I've really struggled between the two categories and which one I was going to choose to talk about every week, but I ultimately decided, why not do both? I have a deep love for all things creepy, and I love to torture myself with nightmares, apparently. My goal for this podcast is to bring you cases and stories that haven't got as much attention or may have been forgotten about. This first case takes place in the 1940s in the UK, and this is the case of John George Hay, also known as the Acid Bath Murderer. John Hay was born July 24, 1909, in Stamford, Lincolnshire, England, to John Robert Hay and Emily Hudson. John Robert was an electrical engineer, so as you can imagine, John George was born into an affluent family. Both John Robert and Emily were members of the Plymouth Brethren, which is a super strict conservative Protestant church that believed that the Bible was the only true authority. Because of the strictness of the church, John later claimed that he suffered from recurring religious nightmares all throughout his childhood. While his parents were well off, they were abusive to say the least. They would lock him into small rooms and wouldn't let him go outside and he wasn't allowed to play with any toys. Even through all the abuse and nightmares, John was still a promising child. He learned to play the piano at home and was very interested in classical music. He was a super smart child and even won a scholarship to Queen Elizabeth Grammar School in Wakefield and then won another scholarship to Wakefield Cathedral where he became a choir boy. After school, John was an apprentice at a firm of motor engineers but he wouldn't stay there too long. After a year, he left the firm and took jobs in insurance and advertising. Guess you could call him a jack of all trades. He started his criminal career at the young age of 21, where he was fired after being suspected of stealing from a cash box at one of his jobs. This incident was the tip of the iceberg for John. John was said to be a real charmer and very nice to look at, and I will post some pictures into my uh, Facebook group for this podcast of him, and he, I would say, is quite nice to look at. So it's not surprising that he found a wife by the age of 25. On July 26, 1934, John married Betty Hamer, although the marriage wouldn't last long at all. And guys, I'm so sorry. I'm terrible at pronouncing last names. I'm pretty sure it's Betty Hamer. It's H-A-M-E-R. It might be Hammer. This is probably because shortly thereafter, John was through in prison for fraud. While he was spending his time doing what people do in prison, his wife Betty was pregnant with their daughter. Once the baby was born, Betty immediately gave her up for adoption and divorced John. Oh, and remember John's super conservative family? Yeah, they weren't having any of it. When he was put in prison, they completely ostracized him. So at this point, he has lost his wife, daughter, and family. Not looking too good for old Johnny boy. In 1936, John had gotten out of prison and decided to move to London. This is where he met 
William McSwan. McSwan happened to be a wealthy owner of an amusement arcades business. John started working for McSwan as a chauffeur and maintenance man for his arcade business. But of course, John couldn't put the life of crime behind him. See, John was a narcissist with delusions of grandeur, so being someone who worked for someone else as a maintenance man wasn't going to cut it for him. This led him to his next scheme of pretending to be a solicitor by the name of William Adamson. Very creative with the name, of course. He told people that he had offices in... Please forgive me for these pronunciations. I'm going to try my best. He had offices in Chancery Lane, London, Guildford, Surrey, and Hastings. You know what they say. Go big or go home. He sold fraudulent stock shares from the estates of his deceased clients at super cheap rates. Surprise, surprise. He was caught again. Want to know how he slipped up on this scam? <laughs> Someone happened to notice that he had misspelled Guildford, which is supposed to be spelled G-U-I-L-D-F-O-R-D, as G-U-I-L-F-O-R-D. He left out a D on his freaking letterhead, and he was caught. This time, he served four years for fraud and was released just after the start of the Second World War. But did he decide to become an upstanding citizen? Nope, of course not. He continued his life of fraud and served several more sentences after this one. So what did John do during all of his time in prison, you may ask? Well, he certainly didn't use his time to become a good person. In fact, he did just the opposite. John decided while he was in prison that the reason he kept getting caught was because he was leaving his victims alive to later report him. He then drew inspiration from yet another terrible person. Um, it's George's Alexandre Serret, who was a French serial killer. And he was known for the way he despised of his bodies. <laughs> wow, English. Serret was known for the way he disposed of his victims' bodies using sulfuric acid. Now remember, when I told you John was a smart man, he of course used his brain for evil. He planned out his method of using sulfuric acid to dispose of his future victims. He used mice to test his method out and discovered that it would only take 30 minutes for a tiny animal so he did the calculations to figure out how long it would take him to fully dissolve a human body. His theory was, without a body, they couldn't get him for murder. In 1943, John was once again released from prison, but this time he seemed to be on track. He became an accountant at an engineering firm. Pretty tame job. Then he bumped into, you guessed it, William McSwan, his former employer, by chance, or call it William's terrible luck. They became buddies again, and McSwan told John all about his new amazing job of collecting rent from his parents' tenants at their many properties. John, being the narcissist he was, was extremely jealous of William's seemingly luxurious lifestyle that he had earned by doing little work. 
but instead of John purchasing his own properties or starting his own thing, he decided he was just going to simply become William. On September 6, 1944, John lured William down into a basement and hit him over the head with a lead pipe. He then stuffed William's body into a 40-gallon barrel and poured concentrated sulfuric acid into it. He came back two days later and poured what was left of poor William down a manhole into the sewers. It didn't take long for William's parents, Donald and Amy, to wonder where their son had gone, and when questioned, John simply told them that he had gone into hiding in Scotland to avoid being drafted into the war. I guess they bought this story because they didn't question it, and John fell right into doing William's job and collecting all the money for it. However, when the war was about to come to an end and William still hadn't returned, they started questioning him again about his whereabouts. So obviously, he had to get rid of them as well. On July 2nd, 1945, this literal, excuse my French, shit stain, told Amy and Donald to come to Gloucester Road to meet their son who had finally returned for a surprise visit. Yeah. He lured his victim's parents to their death with the false hope of finally seeing their son alive. He murdered them in his own basement, the same way he had murdered William, and once again stuffed their bodies into 40-gallon barrels. But John just wasn't going to leave, though. That's not his M.O. He stole William's pension checks and sold all of Donald and Amy's properties. All in all, he made out with about 8,000 pounds, which was a pretty good chunk of money back then. This money wouldn't last him long, though, because John developed another bad habit, gambling. Seeing that his money was running out, he had to find another victim. The opportunity presented itself when Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife Rose decided to sell a house. John pretended to be an interested buyer, and the Hendersons invited him over to play the piano at their housewarming party. It was at this party that he came into possession of Dr. Archibald's 38 caliber revolver. His next move was to rent out a small workshop on Leopold Road in Crawley, Sussex. He then moved all of his barrels and acid from Gloucester Road to his new workshop. There will also be pictures of his workshop posted in the Facebook group. On February 12, 1948, John told Dr. Archibald that he wanted to show him one of his inventions. He drove him to his workshop where upon arrival, he shot Henderson in the head with the same revolver he had stolen from him at the housewarming party. But then, John had one more problem. Mrs. Henderson. He couldn't just leave her alive because she would have known that her husband was with him. So he told her that her husband had fallen seriously ill. When she arrived to aid him, John shot her as well and into the germs of acid they went. John wasn't done until he got something out of it though, so he forged a letter from the Hendersons and sold every single one of their possessions except their car and their doggo. He freaking kept their dog. Like what even? John's next victim was his undoing. He met Olive Duran Deacon, who was a 69-year-old widow and a resident of the Onslow 
Court Hotel, where John was also a resident. True to his fraudulent ways, John had told Olive that he was an engineer. Olive, believing this to be true, pitched to him an idea she had for artificial fingernails. A lady with great ideas, obviously, and way ahead of her time. He asked her to come to his workshop, presumably to get a start on her idea and to draw up some blueprints. She obliged, and on, on February 18, 1949, she walked into his workshop and was immediately shot in the back of the neck with the same revolver that had killed his previous victims. He raided her of her valuables, which included a Persian lamb coat, because Olive was a bad bitch. And then she also took an acid, and then she also took an acid bath. Two days later, however, her friend Constance Lane reported her missing. This phone call would spark the investigation into John Hay. It didn't take detectives long to come sniffing his way, though. With a criminal rap sheet like his, it wasn't rocket science. After all others had heard of Olive's idea, after all, others had heard of Olive's idea and John's offer to fix her up some blueprints. While searching his workshop, they found a dry cleaning receipt for Olive's lamp coat as well as papers tying him to the Hendersons and the McSwans. And the final nail in the coffin? John's new workshop didn't have a manhole like his last place did, and so he had been forced to improvise. He took what remained of poor Olive and dumped it out in a garbage pile at the back of his property. This is, was what pathologist Keith Simpson found. Trigger warning here because this gets a little bit graphic. 28 pounds of human body fat, part of a foot, gallstones, and part of a denture were concluded to have belonged to Olive Durand Deacon when her dentist identified her denture during the trial. John said in Olive's case, and I quote, he'd even had time for a cup of tea and a fried egg on toast between shooting her and starting her acid bath treatment. Real upstanding guy. John was put on trial for the murders of six people, including William, Amy, and Donald McSwan, Dr. Archibald and his wife Rose, and Olive Duran Deacon although John claimed he had killed nine people. Who were the other three? Nobody knows. During the trial, John made the claim that he had went mad due to his consumption of his victim's blood and tried for the insanity defense. This is why you may also see him referred to as the vampire killer, even though there was no proof that he had indeed drank human blood. An officer later testified that John had asked him what his chances of getting out of a mental hospital were compared to getting out of prison. With this new information, it only took the jury half an hour to reject his insanity plea and sentence him to execution at Wadsworth Prison. Now get this. Madame Tussauds visited him the day before his execution 
and spent three hours making a life mask for the wax model they were going to showcase the day after his death. He even donated clothes he had chosen for his own wax figure. Bonkers, I know. On August 10, 1949, John was executed by hanging at Wadsworth Prison. Now today, you can visit the Museum of London where you will find the gloves and apron that he used to protect himself from the acid, as well as Olive Durand Deacon's gallstones, ew, and dentures, and the revolver he used as his murder weapon, the revolver that once belonged to Dr. Archibald. Well, I know this is kind of a shorter case, and I hope to dive into some even longer ones in the future, but not a lot was found about his past and things like that, so we mostly just got an overview of the crimes he committed and what kind of evil person that he was. So, thank you so much for tuning in to the first episode of Bones and Apparitions. There is a Facebook group available, like I mentioned before, where I will post pictures from each case that we cover. You can find that by typing in the Bones and Apparitions podcast into your search bar and joining the group. And until next time, stay creepy, my friends.